in a world driven by selfies and social media, where empathy and entrepreneurs are considered contradictory. One podcast has set out to put empathy back in the boardroom by hearing from the best entrepreneurs around the world. Empathize It will hear from the leaders of the digital economy and learn how the soft skills drive their business. This is the Empathize It podcast. Good morning, Carrie Freed. How are you? I'm doing great. Good morning, Mordecai. How are you doing? Great. Uh, so uh, this is hopefully the third time's a charm. Uh, now that we've tried two times and it hasn't worked, hopefully this time we'll get it right. Um, so before we start talking about um, our conversation about empathy, entrepreneurship, and uh, some of the various aspects and ways to really learn to become more empathic in our leadership, uh, why don't you tell us about yourself, Carrie? Sure. Well, uh, my name is Carrie Freed. I made Aliyah to Israel about a year ago with my family. Prior to that, I lived in Los Angeles where I um, had a family-owned business that I founded with my dad about 20-plus years ago. Uh, I was a marketing VP there, but because it was a family-owned business and a startup, I did pretty much every job you could imagine there, from answering phones to, you know, signing paychecks. Um, in the early days. So I have a really wide background and I'm the kind of person who likes to roll up her sleeves and get really involved. And um, especially in terms of marketing, there's always, there are always the small and the large projects. So I like to really be very hands-on about things. And um, I, I consider strategy to be my strength, but um, I do the tactics too when necessary. So um, I had experience in both a large marketing department with a lot of people with, you know, very clearly defined roles and then a smaller department where it's all hands on deck. So I have pretty varied background. Okay. And before, well, the truth is that it's a good thing that we actually haven't had a chance to hit the record for whatever technical reasons the record didn't work the last two times because now that we both understand the topic a little bit more and you came and gave, us, gave me some more background about what you're going to be speaking about, we had a chance to... Uh, talk about some, send you some articles or share some articles with each other about empathy and what leaderships, uh, leadership organizations or organizations there are, that its leadership are really commanding the idea of empathy in a large scale on, um, enterprise. And I sent you two articles or I actually sent you one. And then I saw another one that was similar from the same uh, company, uh, namely Microsoft. And it's going to be related to what we're going to talk about first. But I sent you an article about how uh, the CEO of Microsoft Satya Nadella's, you know, really has changed the way Microsoft has been perceived because of the way he's becoming more focused on empathy with within as a cultural norm for his for Microsoft as a whole. And various articles, I've been reading the one from Fast Company. I sent you one that was sent by that was included in, in Wharton. But before we start talking about more detailed about Microsoft and using it as a springboard uh, for conversation, you mentioned to me several times, and it still fascinates me, that you took a class at Google about um, empathy and, um, and the approach that they're taking for their executive team and how they're reaching out to other executives uh, all about it. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. That was really a highlight for me in my professional career. Um, a couple of years ago, you know, I had personal reasons I needed to really start understanding mindfulness and applying it and like stress reduction techniques. 
And first I started doing a lot of yoga and then, um, which was really great for me. And that kind of led me on a search for mindfulness. And I found an executive kind of a corporate training curriculum that is offered by Google and has a really interesting story. So the course is called Search Inside Yourself. And it started at Google by an employee there. I think he's employee like number 13. So he's been there, you know, since the beginning. His name is Cade Meng Tan. And what's really cool, one of the cool things about Google is that they give their employees like 20% of their work time to devote to personal projects. I guess it's an altruistic move in that they want people to be able to explore their passions. But it's also, you know, if it's good for Google, then, you know, it's a good investment for them. So Cade had this really interesting his, his personal 20% project was world peace. And everybody kind of laughed at him and they're like, oh, that's hilarious. How are you going to solve world peace in your 20% of your work week? And he did something um, that I think is very typical of Google where he used the massive resources of Google to bring together people from all around the world who are experts in mindfulness and kind of related sciences. So he brought many of the people who study mindfulness and its impact on health, people like John Kabat-Zinn. He brought in people who are experts on emotional intelligence, like Daniel Goldman. He brought in the Dalai Lama, you know, so with the resources of Google, he's able to bring together these major players and also a lot of neuroscientists who in the last, let's say, 20 to 30 years, because of the, the technological improvements and abilities that, that doctors and medicine have now, it can actually, there's a, there's a new science, I'll tell you now, but 20, 30 years ago is very new called neuroscience. And what's amazing is that using what's called an fMRI, so MRI technology, they can actually use that on people and watch them meditate or watch them react or watch their emotions in the brain. So he brought together these scientists who had this leading edge technology and knowledge to look at how people's brains really work emotionally and how could you even control your mind to become more mindful, more empathic, more patient, more creative, all of these things. And, and what's really cool is that they looked at a number of monks, people who meditate for like literally thousands of hours. I think some of the monks had, had meditated like 10,000 hours in their life. And they looked at the structure of their brains and they saw that people who spend a lot of time, I mean, a lot of time in meditation can actually alter the structure of their brains. They can change the dynamic, even how their brains react, how their brains work because of a deep sense of calm and introspection. And they saw the main thing that they saw, which we can talk more about, is that while most of us function from a part in our brain called the amygdala, which is kind of where the fear, the fight or flight uh, instinct or uh, lives in the brain, they saw that in the brains of those monks and the people who had done thousands of hours of meditation, that the amygdala was shrunk and the other parts of their brain, which control emotion and and feelings of oneness and unity had actually enlarged so that most of us spend most of the time functioning from the amygdala, which means everything is, is a threat. And the amygdala is a part of the brain that, like when we were cavemen, would tell you, oh, when you saw a saber-toothed tiger, you should run. So there aren't any more saber-toothed tigers that threaten people. And even though 
you know, we don't have those kind of life or death threats, most of us, I would say, in America or in the Western world, let's say, um, we still function from that part of the brain. So it's not the saber-toothed tiger anymore. It's your boss or your coworkers that can trip the wire and make people operate from this fight or flight part of their brain. They call it, we call it amygdala hijack. So most of us are usually operating from this part of the brain that, that makes everything feel like a threat. So if you're at work and you're operating from your amygdala, you're not, you know, you're in a stress mode. There's cortisol running through your brain. There's stress hormones running through your body. You're not really able to work or function or focus at optimum capacity because everything feels like a threat. So what the curriculum at Google taught are exercises and the science behind getting out of that part of your brain and learning some gentle, meditative, or reflective kind of practices that help you shift really the way your brain works. And if you can really commit to regular meditation or regular mindfulness practices, you can absolutely change the way that you function in the world. And becoming more mindful has a huge impact on on your work product and on your attitude at work, on your creativity, your relationships, etc. And um, the course was really amazing because Google practices what they call radical generosity, and they basically give away the curriculum. So once you've learned the curriculum, you're allowed to go and take it around the world or wherever you are back to your work and share it with people and kind of watch what happens when people become a lot more mindful at work. Right. And it seems, I mean, that's exactly, uh, I'm looking at this article, two, these two articles that mention it at Microsoft, but it's very much reflective of what you just mentioned is that, uh, you know, Satya Nadella says that basically he says, even though most people view empathy as like a soft skill, it's really, it, especially relevant to the hard work of business. It's like a, he calls it the wellspring of, of innovation since as soon as we, why, why does he call it innova- wellspring of innovation is because he says that as soon as we can understand and grasp our customers' unmet, unarticulated needs, we actually have a chance to really decide, find the solutions to those problems. And in other words, find the, we can make innovation. Innovation comes when we understand our customers, our consumers' needs, as opposed to assuming something about them. But So being more mindful and more deliberate about what we're listening to and trying to focus more on their needs and their words and their unmet needs and their unmet um issues and problems, we are actually coming to solve a problem that is much deeper than just, oh, we think this problem that the company might say is we think this problem was, was what everyone needs. We're actually doing it the other way. We're taking the time to think and to respond to what people are actually telling us they need, or maybe they're not necessarily, haven't, we haven't found the problem yet, but we're allowing to innovate. So by, by working, instead of working from this, what my boss thinks I need to do, or I'm scared of what my boss wants me to do, I'm rather doing, rather doing is I'm focusing on allowing myself to be more mindful of what really being needed, which means to, to focus, to be mindful, and to be empathic with our consumers. Is that really what kind of Google was trying to get you to, to get, get that to? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that point. I loved what, what he was saying in that article. And I mean, I could get more, I haven't really focused as much on the customer approach, which I really appreciate what he was saying, but 
kind of from the business owner approach and looking at our employees and how they interact with each other and with customers. That's kind of the angle where we're taking this. What's interesting about the Google thing is that the Google curriculum is that they don't really focus on the individual. We didn't really talk a lot about the business. Um, we talked about the business impact of mindfulness, but we didn't really talk about how it how it impacts the business, but we more talked about your own individual mindfulness and how that kind of has like a ripple effect. But so what I want to do is let me first show you, share with you the definition uh-huh. of mindfulness because I think it's really important. I think it's and, and Google uses the definition from Justin Cabot-Zinn, who kind of he invented what's called the uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction technique. And he has a clinic at the University of in Amherst, where I went, but I actually didn't know about him at the time, um, unfortunately. And he has has done these studies where he's proven that people with chronic illnesses or chronic pain can minimize their pain and minimize their fear and anxiety around their illnesses using mindfulness practices. So he has a very science-based approach to it. And I think a lot of times people are like, oh, meditation, mindfulness is very woo-woo. It's really not. At Google, it was really, I think, because of the nature of that company and the way they work and they function in the world, this is all science-based. So, so John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness, I feel is like you could take it to the bank because it's based on research, and this guy really has done the work with the impact. So he, he defines mindfulness as paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. And I feel like even if we ended the podcast right here and people went off to meditate on that concept, right. that would already be an improvement. But what was great about the Google curriculum is that they really gave you the tools to get there because, listen, a lot of people tell me, oh, you know, I'm too, I'm too busy to meditate. I can't sit still for two minutes. I can't do that. I can't clear my mind. Right. But it's so accessible. Easy. I had a friend who told me, saying, sorry, saying that you're too busy to meditate it's like saying you're too dirty to take a shower. Right. It's like exactly what you need. And people think that you have to be like a monk in a robe on top of a mountain, and it really isn't like that. It's really a lot simpler. And especially when they come at it kind of like from the scientific perspective and they break it down step by step how to do it, it becomes a lot more accessible. So I think that the... the, the the Hiddush or the new, the, what Google came to add to the conversation is to look at mindfulness like in a very um, kind of from an engineering perspective. So they break mindfulness down, their whole step, search inside yourself is broken down into three steps. So one is attention training. So that would be training yourself to be mindful. Step two is self-knowledge and self-mastery. This is really the definition of emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence means I understand my feelings. I understand how I react. I also can see other and understand other people's feelings and how they react. And then their third step is creating useful mental habits. So developing a practice around mindfulness and emotional intelligence that, that allows you to grow it so that you're becoming more and more mindful, more and more emotionally intelligent at work and in life. And I want to say, too, just around both these skills, the, the mindfulness and the emotional intelligence have always been considered soft skills. And, and it's been kind of understood wrongly that like either you're born being an empathic, emotionally intelligent person, or you're not. 
And, you know, some people are and some people aren't. And if you're lucky and your boss is emotionally intelligent, then you can have a much easier life. But if you're not lucky and you get some jerk who's totally not emotionally intelligent, you know, you just kind of have to sweat it out and, and figure out how to work with that person. But what the curriculum and what all this research on mindfulness is coming to say is that mindfulness and emotional intelligence are like muscles, like any muscle that you would go to the gym or any skill that you would work on to improve you can also improve your emotional intelligence quotient or your EQ or your mindfulness so that it's not just something that belongs to the select lucky few who happen to be born that way. And I was lucky because my father, um, who passed away, but was an incredible role model for me because he was a naturally empathic person. He understood other people. He felt other people's pain. He could relate to other people in that way. And he could, in him, incredible mastery over his own emotions like I would be losing it when he, for him when he should be losing it and he just didn't see it didn't make sense to him because of all he wanted to achieve it was an indulgence to have an emotional you know outbreak and he really naturally was able to control himself because he he would keep his eyes on the prize so to speak he knew what his greater goal was I don't have that natural ability so I had to work on it a lot more to get there so I was able to see kind of I really use the curriculum to my benefit to almost, I don't want to say change my personality, but I definitely developed skills that, you know, I didn't have before taking that course. So I know from firsthand experience that it is possible to build the muscle, to build the skills. It takes dedication. Like anything, you wouldn't go to the gym one time and think, oh, you know, there I go. I lost my 20 pounds and I'm ready for the marathon. You would work and work and work. So Mindfulness is kind of like marathon. It's kind of like a marathon. You've got to put the work in, and it's something you've got to commit to. But the payoff, I think, is really huge. And 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 it, and when you start to see the change, it's really motivating. Right. One of the things that they talk about in the Google curriculum that was really perplexing for me in the beginning, but it's something I've come to understand deeply now, is to listen. The advice is to listen to what people are not saying. And as soon as I heard that, I thought, oh, that's like one of those really deep, like, zen riddles, like what if a tree falls in the forest, you know, kind of thing. And I remember going back to work after that class and thinking, like, what are you talking about? Listen for what's not being said. What does that mean? What does that mean? And I had a few experiences that were, like, so eye-opening where I was really able to understand what people were not saying that it really just proved to me how powerful all this is. The idea behind it is that there's so much that happens in our communication that is not verbal. Our verbal communication is only a very small part of our total communication. There are all kinds of cues and body language and other kinds of messages that people are sending. And when I was able to kind of tune into that other level of communication, I learned so much more about the people that I worked with and I became such a better co-worker and manager for the people that I worked with because sometimes people don't even know what messages they're putting out there but they could be self-sabotaging or they could be just giving more information than they mean to and when you're able to respond to people on an emotional level I think that deepens relationships it deepens trust in the workplace and it makes you it can make you kind of like the go-to person or a preferred person to work with 
in your environment. And, and I think it's really, really good for your career and, and the relationships because basically every career is based on relationships and, and certainly career advancement is based on relationships. And if you can cultivate strong, emotionally sound, you know, trust-based relationships, that is going to propel your career. Right. So in some ways, I was very self-motivated to do this stuff. I mean, it's also about other people, but I also saw a change in myself that that I really value, that I really appreciate, and I think made me a better coworker and a better partner for the people that I work with. Absolutely, and that's. It seems like even though Google, you mentioned at the beginning, uh, Google respond, you know, kind of focus on the individual and on the person to grow themselves. But as you mentioned now, that the individual, as soon as you start with becoming more mindful of yourself, that obviously, you know, spills over and translates into your being a better employee and working with other people because you're now mindful of yourself, which means that you're going to be more mindful and you're really listening to other people's stated and unstated responses and how they're, and how they're, and how they are saying certain things, you know, verbally and not saying, and saying other things non-verbally and you're communicating, they're communicating something and you're becoming much more sensitive and much more mindful of that uh, response. And therefore you're helping them as well by just by focusing on yourself or focusing on your own, you know, mindfulness through this Google program, you're that you obviously translated back into growing the, the awareness and the emotional uh, quotient of your, of your, um, of your company. Well, yeah, let me give you an example like a, from the science, kind of from the science side. So we have something in our brain that everybody has, most everybody has, something called mirror neurons. Mm-hmm. Mirror neurons are those, those are operating like, do you ever see, you can do this experiment with a baby. Kind of, it has to be a newborn, not just any baby. It has to really be a newborn. But if you are looking at a newborn baby like square in the eyes, and I've done this a hundred times and it never fails to astound me, but babies mirror neurons that's how babies learn a lot about the world by mirror neurons. It's kind of what it's telling you. They're mirroring the other person that they're having a conversation with. So if you take a newborn baby and they're looking straight in their eyes, you stick out your tongue. You do it a couple of times. The baby will stick out their tongue. It's incredible. Those are the mirror neurons at work. Mirror neurons are also at work. Like when you're really thirsty and you see somebody drink, have a big drink of water or a big, you know, guzzle a big soda you feel thirsty, your throat starts to work as if you were swallowing the drink while you're watching somebody drink it. Those are your mirror neurons. So we learn a lot about the world, especially pre-verbal, through mirror neurons. But even when you're 30 years old and you're at work and you're not a baby anymore, those mirror neurons are still functioning. They did this really interesting research where they had a guy get into an elevator and he was, he was really, like, stressed out. I mean, it was an experimenter, so he was acting. But he was acting extremely stressed out. Then they studied, I don't know how exactly what the mechanism was, the blood pressure. They studied something about the other people in the elevator who were sur- around this guy. And their stress level went up just from being exposed to a stressed-out person in the elevator. So if you think about your workplace or your family or, you know, anywhere that you go and anywhere you spend time and are in relationship with people, if you're brought, you don't even know sometimes that you're broadcasting your stress or your sadness or your frustration or whatever emotion it is, it's kind of contagious. I think a lot of people know that anecdotally, that if somebody comes in and they're in a terrible mood, they can affect everybody around them. Kind of a mom knows that as a parent, you know that. 
But now they have science research that shows you that, that people are, even if you come in and you're clearly upset, but somebody asks you how you're doing and you're like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. The fact that you're not fine and it, that it's beyond your control, you are broadcasting and people are receiving your signal. So sometimes there was, I, I think I told you this the last time we spoke, that there's a woman in my office, an extremely emotional person. And when I realized when she was assigned to my department, I realized I had to manage her. I was very, very upset and nervous about it because she's a scary prospect, let's just say. Somebody who like cries in every meeting, no matter what you tell her. And she was great. In the end, I was very appreciative because she was a person that I was able to test out all these theories of mindfulness and emotional intelligence on because she didn't realize how clearly she was broadcasting her true feelings, even though she was smart enough to try to hide them. But using some of these techniques around mindfulness and reflection and understanding ourselves better, I was able to connect with her on a much deeper level coach her in terms of managing her own emotions and she was the first person that I was really able to see what she wasn't saying or hear what she wasn't saying and I remember when it happened with her I literally like slapped my hands on the desk like oh my god there it is I scared her but when I explained to her what was happening what was doing in in a gentle in a gentle way she also became very much aware of how she was broadcasting to people she thought she was hiding it Right. Which she wasn't doing at all. But, uh, you know, people are bringing their whole self to work. They're bringing their mortgage problems and their marriage problems and their family issues and their health problems. They can't leave that at the door. And so I feel like you don't necessarily have to indulge all those problems and become, you know, somebody's kind of confidant at work. That's not what I'm saying. And this is not psychoanalysis. But if you know what you're dealing with, it's kind of if you know the material that you're dealing with, you're able to interact on a different level and shape that material, kind of work with what you need and leave the stuff, you know, that you don't need or, or, or kind of at least kind of parse out the emotional stuff that doesn't belong at work and just respond to the person in the more kind of work-oriented way. Right. So. And, and that seems to. That's, I, that's I, very powerful. It is very powerful, knowing how to understand the person or at least be able to, like you said, shape or mold, help mold the person to be able to be obviously be productive at work, but also more importantly is to make sure that the, their personal issues are not only going to be, that they shouldn't be a hindrance at work because you're working with them and making sure that they can focus, but also more importantly is that they're growing and that they're become, take, making an impact on what they're doing at work by understanding how to be better, more mindful of, of their issues so that way you can direct them and they can also be directed within the company. And I think uh, right, and something yeah, something as simple as I want to share with you an example, like what we did, and this this also took took a little while for people to to catch on and to not be afraid of. But even if like starting a meeting with two, with a minute of quiet, right, and breathing exercises, where you know you take a nice gentle inhale and a nice long exhale, and you take two or three breaths like that. I wish I could invent, I wish there may even be a, an instrument that does this, but I would like to invent an instrument that reads people's emotions, like a thermometer right. in the room, because standing in the front of the room or sitting at the front of a conference table and asking people to take three or four breaths before a meeting, and not, not just like tense meetings, but any meeting, if you do that, you can actually watch, as if you could watch the temperature drop in the room, you can watch the level of tension 
drop in the room. And just a few breaths prior to starting a meeting allows people kind of like a break to leave whatever doesn't serve them in that meeting outside the room or behind them. And to at least temporarily refocus yourself and re kind of calibrate yourself for the task at hand. And we would start a lot of our marketing department meetings. We even had like a little lunch and learn group that we did that would meditate together. And we brought in different guided meditations every month. Um, that radically changed people's perspective. And then it has like a ripple effect. If you sit through a really nice meeting where you're very present and very focused and people are respectful and, you know, check their emotions and are able to kind of um, respect where each other are coming from on a very deep level, that has a huge impact on your company. Because when people go back to their desks, they're in a different headspace than the, than people around them. And that just kind of, it's like, it's like contagious. Right. It has just like a really negative attitude. We all know how negative, crappy attitudes are contagious. Well, if you're purposefully calm, that also is contagious. And that also affects the people around you. And I think that that's a career booster because if you're easy to approach, easy to work with, you don't lose it under stress. You're able to keep things in perspective. You're able to have a real genuine connection with the people that you work with. And you don't have to love them. We don't all love everybody that we work with, but you're at least able to be respectful and kind and connect in a truthful kind of trusting way. And that is a huge differentiator. And I think whether you're dealing with your customers or your coworkers or your family after work, that is something that distinguishes you from other people. And I, I think that's good for your career. Absolutely. And it kind of talks about the other book that we didn't get to talk about too much about from uh, Stephen Covey about Smart Trust, where you mentioned a couple of times when we met that he kind of talks about if we're more empathic and more focused and mindful with our employees and our, within the company and the culture of the company is that in that direction, it creates a, we've kind of earned more for the company because we kind of more, the, the people, everyone in the, in the room is more mindful and more empathic and more engaged with a more deliberate focus, as opposed to if someone is not, if the company is not encouraging that kind of aspect or that kind of mindfulness, then what happens is, and I believe you, uh, you mentioned it, but I'm sure it's in the book too, it's, it's basically a, a smart, you're creating a, 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 a tax. We, we basically have a tax that the company has to pay because everyone is so stressed and so not focused or they're focused on other things. So they're doing the focusing on the other things plus work and therefore, they're not being as effective or as efficient because of their distress and the lack of empathy and lack of awareness and deliberate efforts that they're, they could be making. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So I, I, like you said, I see a, a link, a definite link between higher emotional intelligence and more mindfulness and trust. And um, trust is a facilitator at work. I mean, just imagine for people listening, like the difference between working with people who you trust and working with people that you don't trust, what's your end product going to be? Well, obviously your end product is better when you work with people who trust. The creative process is better. The, 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 every step along the way is more comfortable and easier. And that the tax trust that you're mentioning is really kind of invisible. It's not necessarily something that you, that's in your P&L statement. Right. But... It, it's invisible, but it's very real. You're either paying, and it's what Stephen Covey says in his book, you're either paying trust tax or trust dividend. 
And even though it's invisible, it's either, it's the difference between, you know, pushing a rock uphill to get something done or, you know, letting the rock roll downhill to get something done. The trust is kind of like the oil, I guess, in the engine that makes it run smoothly or makes the effort a lot harder. And trust is definitely built when people are more emotionally aware and emotionally intelligent because you can't trust somebody whose emotions you can't predict or, you know, anticipate. So it, it, and, and I think also like there's a change kind of culturally where that rampaging manager who, um, you know, has a lot of power and control is actually people, people admire that person because, oh, typically it's a male, but not always, you know, oh, he really gets things done, you know what I mean? But if people are using, like, fear and intimidation to get things done versus emotional intelligence and understanding the people around them to get things done, you know, just think of the difference in those workplaces. So I think there's been a cultural shift also that, that people are hungrier for this kind of approach. People in general are so stressed out that they're looking for solutions to that stress. And sometimes, whether it's breathing or I also had kind of what I call my reflection journal, it was on my desktop, on my computer, where I would take two minutes a day to just free association, almost type in journal, how I'm feeling, what I'm feeling, what I want to be feeling versus what I'm actually feeling. And just kind of taking it, it's almost like taking your emotional temperature. Mm-hmm. Just sometimes taking your emotional temperature during the day can make you more aware of how you're reacting or feeling, and that helps you better adjust to the people and the situation around you. Absolutely. So there's kind of no negative. There's no nothing negative that comes out of being more mindful. It's only positive. Um, so it could be a reflective journaling exercise. We did other things where we call it's called a, a, a dyad. So you have two people. And we, and we do this in meetings all the time. Like one of the, one of the major issues that for people, let's say, who are shyer or quieter at work, they're always being interrupted to the point where they just stop talking because either they think, oh, nobody cares what I have to say, or it's so hard to get a word in around all the people who are so verbal and it's easier for them to talk and they just kind of shut down. So we, we did this exercise where two people would sit face to face. You have, and you call one person A, one person B. So person A speaks for three minutes uninterrupted. And it's very, very hard to do this, whether you're person A or person B. For some people, it's very hard to talk for three minutes. For some people, it's nearly impossible to listen for three minutes. So you do this exercise and then you switch. And then B talks for three minutes and A listens. And then you share with each other kind of what the experience is like of sitting there quietly listening or of being listened to in a truly empathic way of really being listened to. And that gives people such a good feeling, such a calming feeling that they don't usually experience at work. And that that can be transformational, just developing listening skills. And that is also part of the, the search inside yourself curriculum, learning to listen to others and learning to listen to yourself. So many times, most of our life, we're all like in our head. What happened yesterday? What's happening tomorrow? Most of us, if you if you watch your thoughts, you can figure out kind of be more a past-oriented person or a future-oriented person. But most of us, except for the monks who meditate for thousands of hours, really aren't in the present moment. So it's a good experiment to do with yourself and you just like get going through your day. Like, where's my head right now? Oh, I'm thinking about yesterday. Oh, I'm thinking about a bill that's coming. Oh, I'm thinking about an appointment that's coming up. Or I'm thinking about my kids and I should do something next week. You know, we're very rarely actually in the moment 
And some of these exercises that we've learned in the Search Inside Yourself curriculum are all about being in the moment. And just that simple kind of a radical act of just being in the moment makes you a, a better a better partner at work, a more um, an easier person to get along with. So all of these things have tremendous benefit, not only at work, but also in your personal life. So I think that's the motivation that people need to continue this kind of exercise. Like, yeah, it makes me better at work, but ultimately we care also about our personal lives. So I think it spills over. If you do the work for your personal life, it spills over into your work life and vice versa. So it's kind of a win-win you know, for whoever's practicing these techniques. Absolutely. So I know that you're pressed for time. So I want to say, first of all, thank you very much on uh, giving me the time and finally getting it to record properly. Uh, but like you said, the ability to be more deliberate, more focused and more engaged with our, not only with our own self, our own mindfulness within ourselves, but also within the people around us, especially at work, it only helps, like you said, it's called a trust dividend. We're only bring it only brings more, success to the company and to the enterprise because of the way people are listening more actively. And so not only will they work within the team, but they're also going to be starting to work more deliberately and more focused on how they're interacting and engaging with their customers, which will also bring back, bring us back to the beginning of the conversation, which is to be more innovative and more responsive to what the needs of our customers, because we're not only being more mindful of ourselves and more mindful of our team, but more mindful of the customer's but at the end of the day, are really the product, uh, or really the, the reason that we created a company for from the beginning. So as long as we're being more mindful of ourselves, the spillover effect not only to the culture of the company and to the culture, uh, it goes over even better and bigger. It goes to the the next step, which is to the con- consumer, which at the end of the day is really the reason why the company exists. So, um, so Carrie, I want to thank you very much for your time, and I hope. Um, that we can share more opportunities in the future about being mindful and learning more of these skills and tactics that we should be able to uh, impart and interact and use in our daily life. Cause I think you've already started hinting at it, but I'm sure we'll find another opportunity to really get into it. Um, I know that I have some of them that you mentioned in the past in, in my head, but we'll, we'll save that for the next time. Um, so thank you so much for the time. And I really do look forward to sharing this, this podcast. I think it really brings another a set of skills and a set of insights into what uh, empathy and emotional intelligence really means for a company and for individuals. Thank you so much. Well, I, re- I really, really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And I, I like we discussed earlier, I'm going to include, I'm going to give you some notes for Great. the podcast too, with different um, resources and even a couple of exercises that people can use to develop that empathy muscle. Excellent. I'm looking forward to the, uh, to learning how to, uh, to flex that muscle. So thank you so much, Carrie. Be sure to sign up for the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. And remember, the next time you're doing business in the digital economy, make sure to empathize it.